So I just want to start with a little uh, apology for those of you who were not here last week. This is uh, part two of a little series we're doing, and uh, so you may or may not uh, connect with what some of what's being said. I hope there is enough here that it could be standalone in and of itself today, but um, we'll try to connect dots as we go along. But we started last week uh, with the conversation that went on between Ananias and the Lord Jesus Christ in Damascus concerning Saul of Tarsus and Jesus telling Ananias, listen, I want you to go over to this guy's house. You're going to see Saul of Tarsus there, and he's blind, and pray for him and restore his sight. And Ananias, and I really think this is cool that he did this, says, do you know who that guy is? <laughs> he's talking to God, right? Do you know who he is? Sure you want me to do this? And Jesus' response is awesome. He says, go, because he is a chosen instrument of mine. And Ananias was already locked into a perception of who Saul of Tarsus was. He was not in agreement with the way the Lord saw him. I was, uh, caught a little uh, blip on Facebook this past week out of Bethel. And um, come I can never remember that teacher's name. Chris Vallotton, and he made a statement, you know, how awesome would it be in the church if we viewed each other and addressed each other and spoke into each other's life with the prophetic potential that's in all of us in Christ rather than the way we perceive people by their current actions. Would be a different life in the church, wouldn't it? And so that's kind of what we're we're dealing with here. And so we went through some of the dynamics. Uh, we came to a term called the upside-down kingdom. And we ended last week in our upside-down kingdom question was whether someone can be used as a chosen vessel of the Lord before they have a born-again relationship with the Lord. And we came to the place last week at the stoning of Stephen, the church's first martyr, and our introduction to Saul of Tarsus, and that happened in Acts 7.54. It says, and now, when they heard these things that Stephen was speaking, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Now, I, I'd like to really clarify that statement, because it sounds like they were doing, like that, but other versions say, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, they were so enraged that they grab Stephen, they begin to bite him. They begin to gnash on him with their teeth. I mean, you've got to be pretty pretty upset to bite somebody, right? And you can point your finger at him, but when you start biting, you know you've kind of tipped over the edge a little bit, right? So, uh, But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, is that what you'd say if someone was biting you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I see heaven has just opened up. <laughs> you know, it's just like, is that another place? 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So now we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Essentially, Stephen chose the higher road. He chose to mimic Jesus on the cross, who said, Father, forgive them, and gave up the spirit. Essentially, Stephen said the same thing. Now, I do want to clarify some of the information given last week uh, concerning the Hellenistic Jews in the storyline. Some seem to think that the Hellenists in the church whose widows were neglected were the same Hellenists that stoned Stephen. Uh, just for clarity, they are two separate groups. The first Hellenists were those Hellenist uh, Jews who came to faith in Jesus and joined the church in Jerusalem, but because they had a different cultural background, the Hebrew Jews in the church neglected ministry to their widows. So the Hellenistic believers didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. They were educated in Greek schools, mostly out of Alexandria in, in Egypt. And when they came for the feast days, on the day of Pentecost, they experienced what God was doing, the mighty rushing wind, and they heard Peter preach that awesome word and were probably among the 5,000 who got saved that week, and uh, they had joined the church there. But the church that was there were Hebrew-speaking. Hebrew they read from the Torah scrolls in Hebrew. They prayed in Hebrew. They did all of that. So two cultures were melding together around the belief in the Messiah. Okay, Now, you'd think that would be a good thing. But wherever you have two or more cultures, you're going to have what? Clash, right? Culture clash. Boom. Church is no different. So that's what was going on. There was a culture class, and the Jewish believers, the Hebrew believers, were neglecting, because they were in charge of the church in Jerusalem, were neglecting the widows who were coming in from the Hellenist believers. Okay, so just so you get that um, straight. The second set of Hellenists were Hellenistic Jews who were opposed to Jesus and the church. They tried to argue against Stephen's Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom concerning the scriptures and ending up, ended up getting so frustrated and enraged that they killed Stephen and began to persecute the church. Persecution, if you consider this, is neglect at its maximum output. If any of you women have ever lived in an abusive relationship, it didn't start out with a slap in the face. It started out with hard words and then escalated. It's the same thing with neglect in the church. The ultimate outworking of neglect is persecution. Jesus was after the root of something, not the result of what was going on. So in the church, there was racism going on. There was opinion that was formed because their culture was different. So they neglected the widows. 
had that been allowed to carry on in the church, that neglect would have turned into something far worse, and Jesus needed to demonstrate that. So he gave them a taste of neglect at its maximum output in its persecution. Following this? You'll get it. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So what do you see here in this statement? Is it merely a group of enraged guys who are about to stone someone to death saying to a non-participant, hey Saul, can you watch our coats for us as we jack this guy up? That might be what it appears to be, but remember our upside-down kingdom question. And if Saul is, in fact, already the chosen vessel of the Lord, then there will be a spiritual dynamic of attraction taking place as God works out his plan. The principle of spiritual attraction works along this line. People will always choose the chosen. People will always choose the chosen. In other words, they will either choose to follow them or they will choose to be diametrically opposed to them. When you are chosen, you are marked. So all of you young men wanting to be pastors, remember, a little mark becomes a big bullseye once you choose to be chosen. Hmm? So they lay their garments at Saul's feet. And where have we seen this kind of behavior before? In Matthew 21.1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. See what they're doing? And others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So what have they done? They have chosen the chosen. And it really shouldn't be Palm Sunday. It should be Coat Sunday. <laughs> we ought to do that. We ought to do a coat drive for Palm Sunday. Huh? Yeah, that's a good idea. So they have chosen the chosen, and the way that they expressed that was to lay their cloaks before him. Listen, don't miss the significance of what is happening to Saul. And you might say, well, Pastor, I just think you're stretching this thing a bit. Okay, fair enough. All right. Let's dig a little deeper. Remember what Paul, the apostle, says about his prior life as Saul of Tarsus in Philippians 3. 
He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So these were Saul's credentials, his lineage, his heritage, his commitments, and his life goal. And any Jew reading or hearing this would understand what Saul of Tarsus was pursuing. And it is the fact that Saul of Tarsus was on the very brink of accomplishing that goal that these men laid their garments at his feet. Historical documents indicate that Saul of Tarsus' pedigree made him eligible to pursue a high standing in the Sanhedrin, the governing religious council of Hebrew judges at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Saul, educated by the great Jewish sage Gamaliel in the school of Hillel, the strictest of the Torah schools, therefore his educational credentials were impeccable. But Saul is a zealot, and not just in religious matters. Saul worked his way into the affections of the high priest by winning the heart of the high priest's daughter and was engaged to marry her. Now, the moment he said, I do, that would put Saul of Tarsus in line to become the high priest in the temple at Jerusalem. So Saul had goals set for his own life. And so they chose the chosen and laid their garments at Saul's feet. Not for him to guard and stand watch over so no one steals their coats, but to elicit from Saul his tacit approval of the deed they were about to do. Remember last week, Jesus says to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, of mine. Now remember, Jesus is talking about the same guy that the previous scriptures and the historical data describe. And you might say, well, how can that be? It all seems upside down. That God is somehow using the same man that is persecuting his church to also accomplish his will for the church. And yes, you're right. It does seem that way. Altogether, upside down. But in actuality, this is not about the man or the church. It's about the mandate. Do you remember that from last week, the mandate? In Acts 1.8, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been seen of over 500. He's hung out for 40 days with his disciples, eating with them and allowing them to probe his wounds in his body, disappearing right before their eyes, appearing in a locked room, all kinds of things going on. After 40 days, he's on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he's about to ascend up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of his Father, and he says this to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now here's the mandate. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, 
and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there is a concentric series of circles going out from the purposes of God in Jerusalem and expanding outward until he overtakes by his kingdom the whole earth and the earth becomes covered with the glory of the Lord as the seas are with the waters. And the mandate is the outworking of the covenant commitment that God made to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed, singular, not his seeds, his seed. Uh, do you all understand what a covenant is? Is there anyone? Just give a quick hand if you don't know what a covenant is. Okay, A covenant is an agreement between two people to accomplish a task or to bring peace. A covenant agreement uh, in ancient times could be between two kings. Like uh, it says that Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. That was part of a covenant between Pharaoh and Solomon that there would be peace between the two kingdoms, okay? So it's just an agreement. Now, in ancient times, I'm going to explain the way this works. And I want you to notice that I said God's covenant commitment and not the covenant agreement between God and Abraham because it was not an agreement between two people, it was all a one-sided agreement, and God chose to bear the burden of the covenant. So watch how this works. In ancient times, when two men struck up a covenant agreement or a treaty, they would then sacrifice an animal. They would split the animal in two on the ground, and then both parties would walk through the carcass and swear an oath that if either should fail to keep the covenant, then the other had the right to do to them what was done to the sacrifice. Pretty serious agreement, right? They didn't just shake hands, right? If I, if I mess up, if I blow this agreement, you can do this to me, right? So watch what God does with Abraham in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all of these and cut them in half. You see, Abram knew what God was doing. He was forming a covenant. So he went and got the animals. He sacrificed them. He split them. He put them in order. He had an expectation of what was about to happen now. God would show up and the two of them would walk through those carcasses and make 
an agreement that could not be broken. Okay? So watch what happens now. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, if you haven't noticed, let me point out to you that in this account, there is only one party walking through the sacrifice. Abram has been put into a deep sleep by the Lord. God has put Abram into a deep sleep and comes into the darkness of the night as the light to take on himself the responsibility of the covenant. In other words, no matter who fails, God will pay the price. Knowing that God cannot fail, then we have to surmise that God is saying to Abraham that when Abraham's offspring fails, then God himself will pay the price. And we see this commitment reaffirmed in both subtle and not so subtle scriptural statements. I'll give you just two. Genesis 22.6. This is when Abraham is taking Isaac, his son, up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And Abraham took the wood and of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father... And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, knowing God's covenant commitment, Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Did you catch it? Because that's the commitment that God made by passing through the sacrifice. John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is John doing? He's not looking forward to the cross because the cross had not been revealed. He's looking back to the covenant of Abraham, understanding God's covenant commitment, and he says, looking back at that covenant, behold the Lamb of God that will fulfill God's covenant commitment because we as a people have failed God through sin. So let me give you the prophet Isaiah's description of God as the Lamb. I'm going to read out of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, because in the Torah, in the ancient scriptures, there's no chapter, there's no verse. It's just continual dialogue, okay? Isaiah 52:14. as many as were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just what he committed to in the covenant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the, led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sounds like a covenant sacrifice to me. Listen, God is serious about his covenant and his mandate. Now let's see how God uses Saul of Tarsus as his chosen instrument to accomplish God's will concerning the covenant of Abraham and the mandate to the church to bless all the nations of the earth. In Acts 8.1, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Remember the concentric circles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. So there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here we see Saul of Tarsus is definitely standing in a place of authority, representing the powers that be at the Temple Mount. And that is approval 
of stoning of Stephen unleashes an intense and ongoing assault against the church, which is exactly what Saul intends to happen. But as Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings so aptly put it, but something happened that the ring did not expect. And so also with Saul, something happened that Saul did not expect, nor was he aware of the fact that God has used his assault on the church as the means by which to jumpstart once again the mandate of Jesus Christ to take the gospel into all the world. Just look at the immediate response of the church to the persecution. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The concentral circles of the mandate had just exploded out two full layers and the momentum would not stop there. So the story continues as Saul continues in his own mind to destroy the church, Acts 8.3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But God had an agenda all of his own, and it's called working all things to good for those who love him. And that is exactly the fruit of Saul's destructive efforts. How? Why? Because he's a chosen instrument who doesn't yet realize he is being used to accomplish what he is trying to stop. Acts 8.4. Now those who were scattered, why were they scattered? Because Saul was persecuting them. He was the driving force scattering the church. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Were they doing that before? Yes, but only in Jerusalem. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Acts 8.14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. The apostles returned to Jerusalem. But look at what they do as they're returning. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Before the persecution, the Samaritans were still considered to be dogs by the Hebrew believers. Saul's persecution thrust them out into a place where they were ministering life to the very people they hated just prior to the persecution. Because Saul is a chosen vessel. Gospel is now securely rooted in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The mandate is on the move fueled by the persecution of the church by the unknowing chosen instrument. 
And you have to know this is not a light matter to God, but is in fact a major and costly thrust outward by the kingdom of God into the kingdoms of this world. And we'll take this impetus to the max. So the apostles return to Jerusalem, but watch what happens in Acts 8.26. An angel of the Lord comes and says to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now you have to understand, Philip, not only is he a deacon, he's also an evangelist. He's in the midst of a massive revival in Samaria. He must have been like in the seventh heaven, doing what he loves to do and seeing the fruit of it all around him. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, stop doing that and go down to the desert. I'm sure he must have been like Ananias. What? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Leave this? Okay. And he rose and went. Thank you, Lord, for obedience, huh? And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you know what he was reading in Isaiah? Exactly what I just read to you. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, I won't read the whole account, but you can. You can go there and read it for yourself. It's Acts 8. Okay? Read the whole thing. You'll love it. But here's the bottom line. The Ethiopian gets saved and water baptized and takes the good news of his faith into Africa, into Ethiopia. He crosses the border out of Asia into Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mandate just expanded out into the nations of the world. Why? Because Saul is persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And Saul of Tarsus is a chosen instrument of God in an upside-down way. And I just love this last part. We'll close with this. Acts 9, 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, in other words, any Christians, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Now it's interesting. God cut covenant with Abraham on the way to Damascus. There's a little Muslim marker on the side of Mount Hermon where the event took place. You can go there today. And it's between Jerusalem and Damascus. Saul would have traveled right past us. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's where Jesus showed up on Saul's journey. Mm. And suddenly, 
there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the thorns. Saul, every time you kick against my church, I will expand my kingdom. And with that, the influence and the impact of the church will work against you and work for me to bring my covenant mandate to the whole world. It's hard to kick against the thorns. Can you imagine being as dedicated as Saul was to the destruction of the church and to find out that everything you were doing <laughs> was working against you? It would be like kicking into the thorns, wouldn't it? Mm. You see, God is always at work on behalf of us, no matter how dark the circumstances seem to be. Well, let's pray. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning as I pray, invite the Holy Spirit to come. We started off this two-week little series with a perception in the mind of a believer concerning someone who he had observed. He saw their behavior. He understood what he was doing to other people, and it was horrendous. But he had that man locked into a box of perception, his own perception of whether or not this man should receive the grace of Jesus Christ because he had been so bad. And perhaps there's someone who has hurt you deeply in your life. Perhaps there's someone that you have unforgiveness toward in your own heart or mind. Someone who's spoken harshly to you or physically abused you or oh, whatever. Whatever it is. And you get locked into a perception of that person. And Jesus wants to offer them grace. A way out. So as I pray, I'm going to ask you to offer up that instance, that individual, that pain inside of you, that perception that you hold against somebody so that perhaps the Lord will use you as an instrument of grace to their salvation, their redemption, and reconciliation. Because when it's all said and done, the one thing that he's given to us as a church is the ministry of reconciliation. So, Holy Spirit, we pray. We invite you to come in the mighty name of Jesus and to spread in our hearts the love of the Father. Lord, that we would not hang on to our own perceptions of this one or that one, of their behavior and the imprint that, that has left on our minds on our hearts, on our emotions, on our soul. Oh, God, because you are greater than all these things. Because you fulfilled the covenant. You paid the price. You gave your life for the sin of all, once in for all. And that includes whoever you're thinking of now. You can just insert their name. That includes that individual. So, Father, we release to you 
our hurts, our perceptions, our pain, and we ask you, O oh God, to hide it be behind the cross. Take it in under the covering of that wonderful covenant commitment that you made, that you walked out, that you brought to fruition when Christ was raised from the dead. Lord, we want to carry good news to the nations of the world. So utilize us, O oh God, and work us toward good because we love you and you first loved us. Father, I bless this people today. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would walk with them throughout the week and keep them in your way for the sake of your kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.